Hey everyone, welcome to Galaxy Digital's research podcast. Um, this is our first uh, podcast. We don't have a name for it exactly yet. So by the way, if you think of one, feel free to comment or write back to us um, with a good name. I'm Alex Thorne. I'm the head of firm-wide firm -wide research at Galaxy. And this is that first episode of what will ultimately be a weekly podcast uh, focusing, focusing on insights and analysis about trends and events we see in the digital assets ecosystem. Um, I'll be always joined by members of my team. Uh, and today I have Christine Kim, uh, Charles Yu, and Lule Mascal here with me today. Hey, everyone. Hello. Hey, guys. Hello. I'm Christine. Hi. Good morning. Chuck here. Great. So I think what we're going to do on this podcast is typically talk about two or three big stories that are happening in the crypto ecosystem um, and then opine a bit on, on um, what we think is the most interesting takeaway um, and who the players are, why, why it matters, and why it should matter to anyone following this ecosystem. So this week, we're going to talk about Russia and Ukraine and how the resulting sanctions have perhaps indicated that we may see a, a shift in the global monetary order. Um, we're going to speak a bit about Europe's forthcoming MICA crypto regulation. Um, and then we're going to talk about a really interesting story with uh, Yuga Labs, the creator of Board Ape Yacht Club, uh, acquiring the IP uh, for, for CryptoPunks and MeBits from Larva Labs. Um, so a major, I guess, NFT merger, uh, we could call it, uh, one of the first. And so why don't I just kick it off with Russia and Ukraine? Obviously, over the last several weeks, Russia has invaded Ukraine and has been pummeling cities um, and Ukrainian forces across that country. As a result, uh, Europe and transatlantic partners like the US and Canada have joined in pretty unprecedented sanctions, both in their scope and quickness, um, some of which have involved freezing the foreign-held currency reserves of Russia's central bank. Which, which we really thought of as sort of a nuclear option when it comes to sanctions. Um, and, you know, whether they're working or not is, is probably the subject for another debate. Um, but I think it's very obvious that the U.S. dollar as sort of risk-free collateral um, is sort of in question here because, you know, the whole idea of it being risk-free is that it can't be sort of summarily seized or frozen. And, and obviously that's what's ended up happening. Um, and we've seen a lot of developments along the lines of the dollar and sort of Western transatlantic regimes, credible neutrality being called into question. Even countries like Finland and Switzerland, which have been historically neutral uh, between East and West, have taken sides with the West here and imposed sanctions. And in some cases are sending weapons um, to the Ukrainian forces. We also saw even just yesterday, the Saudi Arabian government considering paying for oil uh, with China in yuan rather than dollars. Um, and we can continue to see the reserve assets uh, composition that's dollar denominated in many uh, central bank balance sheets declining uh, over time. China's is down significantly over the last six, seven years. Russia spent years sort of steel manning its economy and central bank against um, what, you know, Western sanctions following their 2014 uh, annexation of Crimea. Um, we see India making similar moves. So I think I just wanted to raise this here as something that is very, very prominent. Major, um, at this point, major commentators are now talking about this. People like Mike Novogratz, our boss, um, Zoltan Posar at, at Credit Suisse wrote a very widely read note called Bretton Woods 3. 
um, and, and many others. And it's kind of funny. I mean, I don't want to brag here, but we were talking about this back on February 24th and February 28th um, and wrote extensively about this in, in our newsletter. It sort of raises the question, not that Bitcoin's going to be that thing that steps in necessarily, but it anything that calls into question credible neutrality of a system, it's it's hard not to look at something like Bitcoin, which is perhaps among the most credibly neutral systems on earth and see that as a stark contrast. So, um, you know, I, to me, one of the takes here, aside from the fact that we're entering a multipolar monetary order, um, which I think is very obvious, is also that um, the sort of investment case for Bitcoin um, is, is expanding beyond simply digital gold uh, to include something like people really recognizing now its value as a credibly neutral platform. So um, that's that's what I'll start the discussion with. Um, would love Chuck, Christine, Lule, if you guys have any uh, thoughts you wanted to add on this. Um, it's obviously been a wild few weeks. Yeah, it has indeed. I think I can kind of jump in to set the framework of what was before. Uh, when we come into an idea of like Bretton Woods too, like you mentioned, it was this idea of, of safety in treasuries that there was a constant bid for US treasuries using this petrodollar. And as soon as you, you place these types of sanctions on Russia, you take away that safety and you start to remove that constant bid for treasuries. And that kind of breaks in and widens this FRAOIS spread, right? This overnight banking spread and that safety, low risk and no risk. That widens and that's what happened in 2008. And you start to see that widen and that's the displacement of, of um, cross-border uh, cross security. And then, you know, to extend that, the, another kind of big issue with this is, is commodities were never polar. There's no such thing as a Russian commodity or a Chinese commodity. Gold is gold, metal is metal, no matter where it's from. But now at this point, there's a difference between Russian oil and non-Russian oil on a political side. Um, and that has created this huge spread. And Zoltan mentioned that's in his paper. And that is what kind of is creating this issue because commodities were, were a ground level to debt in the world. Uh, and, and I think that's a where, to, to jump on what you said as well, where Bitcoin comes in, because then it could be the most liquid commodity. There is no difference between Russian Bitcoin and, and Chinese Bitcoin. Um, so the, the, the two countries that now are in this incredible position are India and China, because they have decided to abstain and they also have decided to start accepting Russian commodities. And that's puts them in a very interesting place. Uh, and to tie back to what you said about Saudi considering, uh, you know, pricing their oil and yuan, what does that do to the dollar? And does the yuan become a more circulated um, currency is, is a really important question to ask as well on top of that. So, so I think, I think I'm, I'm really curious to see how, how commodities evolve. And, and now that it's outside money, now that there's less security in treasuries, where do people find a safe haven is a really important question to ask as well. I also think that the way this whole narrative and discussion around the Ukraine-Russia situation has kind of polarized the crypto industry and the kind of behaviors of exchanges and um, on-ramps and off-ramps to Bitcoin. Um, we've seen the Ukrainian government reach out directly to uh, cryptocurrency exchanges, asking them to please censor uh, Russian addresses. And we've, we've seen uh, very recently that the Ukrainian government has asked Tether to start blacklisting certain Russian addresses. And this puts 
the crypto in industry in a very similar spot of do we start creating, you know, Russian and non-Russian Bitcoins or and to what extent can the, the network continue to stay a credibly neutral network? And um, I think I think that Bitcoin as a network will always remain credibly neutral because it is so decentralized, but there will be uh, large players, large entities that operate on the network um, that do get involved in politics. I think we live in an age where companies no longer can uh, can can shy away from the ESG narrative and they have to really participate in being um, marketing themselves as like a, a good social social uh player uh i would say yeah that's interesting um i definitely agree too i mean in commodities have been an absolute crazy on a crazy run i mean oil basically went up to you know 120 dollars a barrel and fully retraced um and and gold also rose significantly and then has has mostly retraced but we see you know grains metals still quite elevated um, let alone something like uranium, uh, which I think in the face of growing ESG concerns um, has been rising significantly. Um, and Russia is a huge, huge producer of uranium. Um, and so it, it definitely feels like a bifurcation, if not a trifurcation is sort of happening here, right? Um, and and yeah, I would also just point out like there's been a lot of, and maybe this is a good transition into our next topic, but there's been a lot of pushback. Christine, you mentioned um, the Ukrainian government calling for, you know, for freezing and, and, and censorship of, you know, Russia, Russian-based addresses on, on crypto networks like Bitcoin and Tether. Um, and there's been significant discussion in the West about whether Russia or sanctioned individuals in Russia could use cryptocurrency to evade sanctions. I think it's very clear, uh, many, uh, us included, the Treasury Department, many commentators have actually pointed out that crypto is not nearly effective enough uh, to for large-scale sanction evasion to occur. Frankly, it's simply not liquid enough to support a nation-state adopting cryptocurrency in order to evade sanctions, but also it's highly traceable. So, And, and we've seen plenty of examples of why Bitcoin is bad for crime um, but it has sort of accelerated some discussion both in Europe and in the US on whether we should have additional regulations on cryptocurrency. Um, and I don't know, Lule, do you want to introduce that second topic on, on MICA and, and the European Parliament's um, efforts to advance crypto regulation? Absolutely, absolutely. So we, this Monday, we had a little bit of excitement online, uh, March 14th because there was a last minute addition to the MICA, which stands for Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation. There was a last addition that essentially did not actually particularly ban proof of work, but the wording was kind of stated to, to hamper or shut down any trading of a crypto asset that does not abide by environmental sustainability. And then those articles were stated below on what those guidelines are. So in fact, it would ban Bitcoin, uh, but it wasn't necessarily a worded ban of proof of work, which gave it this very broad and very dangerous context. Fortunately, in the heat of it, the crypto community came together and it was voted down uh, with a slight, um, with a slight uh, majority. So just to step back to understand what MICA is, it, it was kind of started in 
after the bull run of 2017 and 2018 on this back of Europe needing to digitize their financial network. They realized, okay, we need to really, this is one of our biggest exports, right? I mean, European GDP has been on a decline since the 70s and financial instruments are, are essentially their biggest export. So they understood we need to, we need to understand and control this and we need to give a, fr a framework. Uh, and so that's what uh, Mike was for. It's for kind of creating a framework for the out of scope crypto assets, which are utility coins and exchange coins. The security coins, however, already fall under their financial services. So that's why this new regulation was really important. And the other thing that's really important to note is that because there was nothing, you know, no regulations there before, each nation had their own regulations, which created this fragmentation and actually led to a lot of firms in Europe leaving, coming to the United States, going to Singapore and Southeast Asia. So this is one of their ways to try to bring a lot of business back, try to make it easier. And I think it's honestly a, a positive momentum towards having a more friendly ecosystem in, in, in Europe. And then one last thing to add on to this, what did happen as a result on March 14th, because that section was, was rejected, a new amendment was added. And this new amendment actually puts the uh, regulation and environmental analysis of crypto under a U EU taxonomy, um, which now puts it under another body of review. And actually in the next two years, we'll place uh, some real regulation on how proof of work will be determined and uh, what the emission, um, emission framework will be for it. And Luol, you did some interesting analysis on the exact groups and, and political leanings of the people that um, rejected the, the amendment to the microbill and then the, the other groups that supported it. Um, what were, was there anything like surprising about who was against the amendments for proof of work and who was for it? Yeah, actually, it's very interesting. So the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats are colloquially referred to as S&D, were unanimously for this. They were pushing this. They were the, the party that uh, introduced this in the last minute. And looking back to a lot of the rhetoric that they've been pushing since the beginning of this in 2018, it's been very Bitcoin focused, not necessarily proof of work, which is a little bit alarming because it seems like there's just an action and a focus attacking Bitcoin. And I think because Bitcoin is in a unique point where it doesn't really fall under the security utility token or the asset token. It's just really this own asset that is falling outside of their framework of regulation. And is a little scary to the ECB and EU in terms of regulating the economy of the EU. Uh, so I think that has been become a particular target vector for that, uh, for that party. But the rest of it, um, the vast majority of the European Parliament is, is very pro-crypto and pro- um, pro-protecting the consumer rather than strangling the exchanges. That's really interesting, but the idea, the intense focus on proof of work mining, even though Bitcoin has always been an area of, of concern and research and, and focus. Um, Chuck, I know you've done a lot of writing and, and um, looking into the regulatory movements of the U.S., have you ever seen kind of like a very intense focus 
on proof of work. I know there were some hearings um, last year on mining itself and its impact when the whole environmental um, impact of Bitcoin was also becoming a very hot topic in, in mainstream media. Um, do you see kind of like a reflection or a parallel of that kind of focus in, in terms of like US regulation in crypto? Yes, I think uh, at least in the US, things kind of kicked off um, after all the Elon drama, um, him calling it, saying he would accept, uh, you know, payments in Bitcoin. And then later um, going back on that statement saying, uh, no, it wasn't in line with uh, with what he or Tesla really believes in from an environmental standpoint. And then, of course, um, that brought along uh, the creation of like a bunch of different organizations looking to dispel some of the truths and um, really assess Bitcoin's impact on the environment. Um, so I think it's really just like a continuation of of all of these uh, these efforts here. Um, we saw it on the uh, the executive order um, issued last week from President Biden that there was a another um, I guess a, another like a deliverable that that um, that sort of assessed like Bitcoin's environmental impact. Um, and so we're going to see, I don't know, uh, the U.S., I feel like the U.S. is actually going to be leading on this front um, because uh, they're probably going to be closer to the day that they have more organizations that are closely tied with, with the Bitcoin miners. Um, and they're going to be able to, to uh, what's the word? I don't know, just come up with, uh, <laughs> have a more comprehensive like view of, of what, the actual look is. Um, but I do think uh, the EU is still taking some initiative in, in pushing this um, agenda forward. But um, in the end, I feel like uh, the US is, is actually going to be leading on it. It's interesting too, because um, there are efforts in the US to, um, outside of Bitcoin mining specifically, but sort of in line with MICA, to try to come up with a more standardized framework um, for digital asset regulation. Obviously, the executive order is sort of a step in that direction, but there's several bills kicking around in Congress to do a variety of things on this, right, and try to join this fragmented ecosystem because the U.S. is, is quite fragmented as well um, on crypto regulation. Most exchanges are regulated at the state level. There's disputes between federal regulators over their jurisdictions, where they start and where they end. And so we're likely to see, I think, some more movement on a MICA-related thing. But I think the shootdown of the proof-of-work coin trading ban in Europe um, bodes well. And it's along, the, it's, it's along the same lines that we've seen in the U.S., um, where legislators are taking a much more proactive and interested, but also positive view overall of the digital assets ecosystem, probably in the face of growing lobbying donations and also just constituents, right? I mean, what did the executive order say? 16% um, of Americans, 40 million Americans, I think they, they claimed uh, own and trade digital assets. That's not a small group. Um, and we know that it's much higher for some demographics than others some of whom are quite important for, um, you know, electoral purposes. So um, good to see. I think we're going to see more. I think all of us agree that the right regulations can be very positive for this industry overall. Okay, so for our third story, let's talk about Yuga Labs, which is the creator and issuer of Bored Apes, um, the most valuable uh, NFT collection. Um, 
They've acquired the IP for CryptoPunks and MeBits, which are two other very valuable NFT collections from Larva Labs, which is, um, and, and, and so quite, quite a massive acquisition and, and, and kind of a fascinating one here as well, right? Because this doesn't move tokens out of people's wallets necessarily, right? This isn't like, uh, they're actually acquiring the punks themselves, right? But they're acquiring the intellectual property um, and, and my understanding here is that um, they, it, it should be quite impactful because Larva Lab's license um, over punks and MeBits was quite restrictive, actually. It did not allow owners of those NFTs to individually market or commercialize those NFTs. Um, it did, you know, up to a tiny amount. I think you could do maybe like 100K of merch if you owned a punk, right? Essentially a sort of a trivial amount, but you couldn't, for example, use your punks in, you know, like brand marketing. Um, whereas the Board Apes Yacht Club license is much uh, more permissive and, and gives NFT owners the ability to um, commercialize the NFTs that they own uh, and the imagery that is associated with those M NFTs. And so, um, and, and now punks and MeBits will come under that license. And it seems like a very positive outcome in my view, partially because um, this is what we thought NFTs were supposed to be, right? It's already, for, for skeptics of NFTs, it's already hard enough to convince them that buying an NFT that represents a piece of digital art is sort of real ownership. But then when you add in the fact that actually for some of them, it's not real ownership, um, you can't even actually use it for commercial purposes, Right, the use. I think the value proposition for NFTs becomes very degraded in that scenario, and it's one of the reasons, perhaps, that bored apes have become so valuable. Um, is that owners of those apes can repurpose them to their, you know, pretty much to their heart's desire. Um, so I think this is very positive. I think it's obviously positive for punks, um, which are one of the oldest NFT collections. They predate the ERC uh, seven twenty one standard. Um, which is what many NFTs use for, for their token standard. Um, and they give the ability, uh, they sort of help, I think, actually realize the value of what NFTs were supposed to be. Um, anybody have thoughts on this, on this story? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to, I guess, pose a question. As a CryptoPunk owner, if I am one, say I own CryptoPunk 1000, now that they own the IP, can they theoretically create my same CryptoPunk and release a new collection with these identical collection and sell it again? But I paid 80 ETH for mine, theoretically. Now, does that does that kind of ruin the value in which I paid for my punk? Yeah, I think they could, um, theoretically. Um, but I think really what they've done, and, and I don't think they would, right? Because that would destroy the value of punks, which they just acquired. I think really it's right. about bringing the punks um, under the same license structure that they use for theirs, which is permissive. So um, they're not going to, I don't think they are going to go and use your punk that you own um, in some marketing stuff and not give you any royalties for it, right? Like, like the, I think that's at the core of the acquisition. Um, whether or not like, you know, Yuga Labs could actually like issue like CryptoPunks to another collection and essentially inflate the, the count of punks that I do not know, but um, I do, you know, that I think that would be detrimental to the CryptoPunks collection, but at the same time, you know, everybody would know what was the true punk and what was not, right? Or was the, the original punk. Um, so presumably they, there'd be some price resiliency on the original punks. 
um, by crypto owners, but you know, it, it, yeah, I'm not sure. Right. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, cause they can always create like, right. They added mutant apes and then they, they added the, the dogs and they can keep adding to these collections. That's true. Yeah. That's the part that I'm, I'm most curious about as well is the, is the owners of these crypto punks and me bits, how optimistic should they feel? Are they happy to be part of, of Yuga Labs because maybe they, as you said, they treat IP in a more fair manner. Um, for the board, board ape owners, it adds to their value. They're, they're part of the juggernaut. But, um, but yeah, they're the CryptoPunks and MeBits owners. I'm really curious what their sentiment is going into this, this acquisition. I also think that in terms of um, the change and the kind of trends that we're going to start seeing of new NFTs being created under the same license as the ones of board apes. Um, I'm curious to know how that might impact, say, the NFT collections coming out of big name corporations like Disney, Nike, sports teams. Um, I have a hard time believing that they will give up the IP rights to anything. Um, so it might be interesting to see a dichotomy between like crypto native NFT projects pursuing this route of like free. Um, free copy IP, um, allowing you to do what you want with the token, staying true to what NFTs were supposed to be, like you said, Alex, and then the kind of more commercial entities trying to make money and profit and, and really use these NFTs as marketing tools um, and, and see how like both sides of the NFT industry kind of like battle it out. I, I, yeah. I, I had no doubt that CryptoPunks um, versus Bored Apes because of that IP difference um, that board aids had more value but now i think with nfts becoming more mainstream um this this trend is is quite an interesting one that might rub the wrong way with with some other players in the space yeah i i think you're right i think for some of these um like brands that have issued nfts you're very unlikely to see them put out nfts that have permissive ip licensing right they're going to be more like sort of reward tokens or badges um, but these are, yeah, these are a different one. And, and I think you'll also see it affect the art market, uh, pretty interestingly as well. Um, I think again, people think that the value proposition of buying a digital piece of artwork is actually owning that digital piece of artwork, as opposed to say, you know, owning a token that links to an image and that's it, right. Not owning the art, not owning the IP, uh, look, you're going to see that there's definitely going to be both. I mean, I guess the question is what's going to be more interesting long-term. That's what I'm always wondering. Um, but digital property, it, this is, a, I think, a positive step in the direction of true digital property um, for this these two projects in particular that, you know, have been thought of as the iconic uh, digital collectibles. And really, when you dig under the hood, they weren't that great, for, uh, at least on the ownership side, right, which to me is pretty much the most important side. So, um, will be interesting. I agree. That's an interesting one to follow. All right. Let's run through just a couple more things, get some hot takes. Um, Ethereum's uh, merge uh, took place on a new testnet kiln, uh, what, a day or two ago. Uh, Christine, tell us about it. Yes. Kiln is the last testnet for the merge uh, before developers start rolling out the merge upgrade to public Ethereum testnets, basically testnets that decentralized application developers, users are just um, using to, to test out different software. Um, and for, for those of, of everyone listening who, who doesn't know what the merge is, the merge is basically the transition of Ethereum's existing proof of work 
blockchain um, to a proof of stake system. Um, the activity of mining, which we talked a little bit about being very energy intensive, is going to be replaced on Ethereum sometime this year, it's expected, with a, a much more energy efficient activity of staking. And basically, developers have released um, a very major test net for, for making sure that there's no bugs, no kinks uh, when that when that merge takes place. So I'm very optimistic. I thought it was a, a nice milestone for the team. Nice. Um, you know, I think that's going to be interesting. We'll, we'll do the proof of work versus proof of stake episode sometime in the future, um, but that'll be a good one. That's going to um, be a hot one. one. <laughs> yeah, one that I don't have on the list, but was really interesting in the Bitcoin community this week was Wasabi Wallet, which is uh, a coin join implementation uh, the, the founder of Wasabi has said that they're going to start doing chain analysis on, on coins going into the CoinJoin pool, um, which was not taken well by obviously users of CoinJoin, which are, are sort of using um, CoinJoin as a way to gain additional privacy for their coins. Um, and so a spinoff was created, uh, Wasabi BTC, which was, uh, it's an open source project, right? So a new version of Wasabi has been created and we'll, and we'll see sort of what happens, but lots, lots occurring in the world of Bitcoin and crypto privacy broadly. Also lots of news on zero knowledge proofs and rollups, which are going to be a big part of this story going forward. Um, consensus raised 450 million uh, at a $7 billion uh, valuation. The valuation to me to, isn't surprising, but I, I did read on Twitter that they're going to spend that 450 on ETH. Is that right? That is right. They they are putting a massive bid in soon. There's no schedule to it, but it will be completely allocated to ETH, uh, which is exciting for any ETH holders as well. Uh, and you know, we're back to to wrap it around back to Micah. This is actually an interesting transition for Consensus. Uh, they moved the MetaMask IP from a Switzerland-based company to a New York-based company for this raise, and so this is a huge deal for them as well. Uh, and and hopefully. Uh, a lot of the, the lawsuits in the background will, will fizzle out as, as they try to progress. Great. Obviously, I think at the time of recording, the FOMC is meeting. And so we're going to get news on on rates, what is likely to be the first of a series of, of um, uh, Fed rate hikes uh, this year, was, is probably going to be announced momentarily. But so we, we won't speak to that now, but um, information about that will be in our newsletter and, and we'll definitely be speaking to it more over the coming weeks. And I don't know, one last thing we had on the list that was interesting we saw was Kazakhstan uh, cr uh, cracking down on Bitcoin miners, um, seizing a bunch of equipment. I, I saw something like $200 million worth of Bitcoin mining equipment seized. Um, I don't know if anybody has thoughts on this. I believe it's now stricter regulations in terms of registering any mining operations and all the ones that were seized and cracked down on were the ones that hadn't followed like the the new policies for I see for mining. And so I, I think given the kind of uncertainty there was when there was that mass exodus of Bitcoin miners for Kazakhstan, the very restrictive policies that are now fully in place and being enforced suggests that Bitcoin mining isn't about to return to the country anytime soon. All right, there's plenty more happening we can't cover here, but before we go, I wanted to ask Christine to give a brief preview of a report that comes out today. Um, and it is the first in a series we are publishing called the Do Your Own Research series, where we will focus on um, educating and examining ways to research uh, cryptocurrencies. And, and this one is an introduction to on-chain 
fundamental analysis. So using on-chain data to create valuation methodologies. Uh, Christine, give us a, just a quick overview on it. Yeah, definitely. Would love to. Um, so this report really offers a comprehensive and uh, general overview of how you can use on-chain data to value crypto assets in different ways. And when I say value crypto assets, uh, there's different ways you can interpret that, meaning, you know, how do you value What's the fair value that Bitcoin should be trading at? What's the intrinsic value of Ethereum uh, given all the use cases that it has? But there's also ways in which you can use on-chain data just to get a sense of investor sentiment. So how are the holders of a token, depending on how long they've been holding their token, um, what are the activities that we're seeing on-chain? Are we seeing a lot of coins moving? And can we assume that that means coins are being sold? Um, these are questions that you can start to ask and start to answer using on-chain data, but it requires um, quite a lot of, of foundational knowledge about how a blockchain works, about the technology of the network itself. So this network, this report really dives into um, showing readers how to utilize blockchain their knowledge about blockchain technology and apply that to fundamental analysis because that's just one of the key things that I find um, without it, there's there's a lot of like uh, misconceptions and, and a lot of wrong takes when it comes to using say like the complex valuation methodologies of Coindase Destroyed or MVR, VSOPR. Um, so so that's, that's the gist of it. Um, I hope everyone checks it out and if you do, be sure to drop a note of what you thought about it throughout Twitter. Awesome. I think it could be really useful for people getting into investing in crypto. Um, all right. That's all we have this week. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to the team for joining. Um, as always, check out our content at www.galaxydigital.io slash research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY research. We'll be back next week. <laughs>